Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the goddess traditions of India. My guest is Professor Debashish Banerjee, who is the chair of the East-West Psychology Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He is also the Haridas Chowdhury Professor of Indian Philosophies and Culture. In addition, he's the author of about a dozen books on subjects ranging from the interpretation of classical scriptures to yoga to meditation to post-humanism and art history. Welcome, Debashish. Thank you, Jeffrey. Such a pleasure to be with you. It's a pleasure to be with you as well. Thank you so much for coming to Albuquerque for this opportunity. You are the first guest that we've had here in our studio since the COVID lockdown began. And it's been a great pleasure to be with you, Debashish. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. When we think about the goddess traditions uh, in India, especially in India, but also throughout Asia, uh, one of the things I notice is that here in the West, we've pretty much almost completely eradicated all of the goddess traditions. There, uh, certainly they exist in little pockets of paganism, but not much more than that. Whereas in India, they thrive. Yes, uh, Jeffrey, you're quite right. Uh, in fact, if we go back to the early period, uh, pre, uh, you know, suppression of the goddess in the West, uh, we find an entire, uh, long period of time that stretches back to 30,000 BC or something like that and stretches forward almost till the first millennium BC when we had goddess worship across Eurasia, all the way from southern Europe to, you know, Asia. Uh, and uh, we, we see these figurines, for example, uh, and they are found in India as well. So all the way from around the 8th century BC uh, to the 1st century CE, you find little figurines of the goddess. Uh, in the Indus Valley, pre-Indus Valley, and also post-Indus Valley for a, for a period of time. Uh, in the Indus Valley, you also find seals uh, that show goddess worship. And you find tree goddesses that are being worshipped uh, by priests uh, through uh, sacrifice of, of animals, animal sacrifice, and maybe even human sacrifice. And then there are other kinds of... Uh, of feminine figures of power on, on the seals, like uh, goddesses or women who have contests with tigers and other animals. So this kind of a tradition, which has been talked about as the earth traditions by religious science people like Mercia Eliade, etc., uh, seem to have been suppressed. And so they're in, in the, in the West. And so th there is a thesis that, uh, you know, around the second century, uh, second, second millennium BC, there was a, a shift and a masculine culture of, uh, 
suppression of codification of a kind of control, authoritarian uh, control that arose in which the more uh, metristic cultures were suppressed. Uh, in India, you also, during this period, you have the uh, awakening of the Veda, that, that these texts arise, and there is a, a very strong, uh, you know, possibility that this is accompanied with migration of peoples uh, who are from Central Asia and who may be the Indo-Europeans. So there's a new kind of language and culture that enters India about 1500 BC or so, uh, Indo-European culture. Uh, but the, the Veda, which is really the sacred literature, the texts, uh, sacred texts that form the foundation of Indian religions today, uh, particularly what we call Hinduism, uh, they're generated at that time. And we find goddesses there as well. Uh, for example, the most uh, prominent, I mean, the most exalted goddess. This is following Indo-European culture. This is more like a, a sun mythology, a solar mythology. So the solar region, uh, which divides, uh, you know, the cosmos, uh, into a region of undivided reality and a divided reality of dualities in which we live. Uh, the undivided reality itself is personified as the goddess Aditi. And the sons, S-U-N-S, are her sons, S-O-N-S. So this is a very prominent, important uh, presence of the goddess and there are other personifications of Aditi and of the agents of, of light and uh, illumination, like Saraswati, who is a very prominent goddess to this day, the goddess of inspiration uh, and of the word. Uh, and then uh, in the Atharva Veda, you have the goddess Shri, who is a goddess of nurture and uh, of, of beauty. So we have these goddess traditions that come in and in time we find a kind of a synthesis of uh, some of the older goddesses reappear and form a synthesis. You have uh, two families, the family of fierce goddesses got, uh, named after Kali, Kali Kula, and the family of the benign goddesses named after Lakshmi or Shri called Shri Kula. And, uh, and so a certain integration takes place over time uh, with these traditions. And there isn't that kind of uh, suppression of the goddess in, in India. As I recall, there are scholars who suggest that it, at some point in, uh, very early in human history, there, there were horsemen who came out of the steppes of Asia. They were warriors. Uh, I think sometimes they're referred to as the Kyrgyz. And, and they brought the worship of the sky god and uh, also brought with them a kind of patriarchal culture that denigrated women and sort of eliminated the worship of the mother goddess. Right. This, this is a very prominent thesis. Uh, one of the really important scholars who has propagated is, it is Maria Gimbutas. Uh, she was at UCLA and she has uh, a, a great following uh, with this particular thesis. 
this was also the idea of the Aryan invasion in India. Mm -hmm. So the, the, exactly what you said, these mounted horsemen, it, it coincides with the transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, which uh, means weaponry of uh, great sophistication and a, a kind of uh, wars in which uh, the docile agrarian cultures of the pre-Aryan past were supplanted. Uh, this was this was the thesis in India as well. But over time, we have not found any evidence of wars and large-scale weaponry, mass burials, or things like that. So the thesis has shifted now to one of a more gradual assimilation, what one might call, a, they call it the Aryan or Indo-European migration theory. So small quantities of people that might have been very influential who came in and gradually there was bilingualism, there was cultural exchange and cultural transformation that took place. This is at least the present mainstream understanding of what happened in India, which is not exactly uh, that idea of the abrupt uh, destruction by uh, warrior patriarchs. I, I see. Now, earlier we did a interview about the Bhagavad Gita and the Mahabharata, which does deal with warfare. Yes. And, and I thought some scholars suggested that the whole epic of the Mahabharata is really about the Aryan invasion of, of India. Would you dispute that? Yeah, th this is generally uh, the, the scholars in the field of uh, even Indus Valley studies, archaeology today, do not hold that uh, thesis at all. Uh, they think more of skir small skirmishes, and maybe what we call the Mahabharata was a kind of fratricidal, small fratricidal war uh, that was created into a small poem, and then that was worked on through the imagination of people who made it into uh, a kind of a great, one what one might call a world war. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm sure there are fundamentalist Hindus who would disagree with you on this point. It's very possible, yes, very possible. I, in fact, interviewed one, Michael Cremo, who said he takes it all very literally. Yeah, th there are people who may take it literally. Mm -hmm. and, and who knows? I mean, history is so unknown to us. Yeah. But we go by evidence uh, to whatever extent, and uh, I, there is no evidence supporting this at this point, at yeah. least. But what we see in the West with the rise of Christianity and its becoming the state religion of the Roman Empire was a very definite effort to really eradicate all the signs and rituals and uh, traditions, holidays, and so on associated with pagan culture, which obviously included the goddesses, but included the gods as well. Yes, indeed. This doesn't really happen in India, I'd say perhaps for two reasons. One is that there were popular nature worship cults in India uh, at the time when the Veda was established. So the Veda did become a kind of social uh, sort of uh, sim symbol. Um, that there was a, it, be it became the foundation of a structuring of society in terms of a symbol that eventually became very rigid. But at the same time, uh, as a reaction to the Veda, we had the Upanishads. 
And the Upanishads are talking about a conscious being, Brahman, that is one and infinite and allows or opens itself to the interpretation that every entity, every group, every god, every conception that you can think of is really a form of the one divine. This made it possible for what has been called the Hindu synthesis from the 2nd century BC to the 5th century CE, where many different local, regional, aboriginal practices were brought under the idea that these are various forms of Brahman. Uh, the other reason that this has happened is due to Buddhism, because I think Buddhism integrated many of these nature uh, followings, uh, even if they subordinated it to some extent, because they wanted followers uh, from these uh, systems to come to them. So they had the nature goddesses featured on their, uh, you know, structures like the stupas, etc. Uh, and so altogether there was a continuation. And around the fifth century, there is a text called the Devi Mahatmyam, uh, which features the goddess Durga. Uh, she slays the buffalo demon. And in a way, even that motif is a repetition of the animal contests of the Indus Valley. So the goddesses of an earlier period, even the fierce goddesses, Durga is fierce, but she's also wise. She's also a benign presence, a mother goddess. So we have already in a figure like Durga, a synthesis of these two traditions, what you're calling the sky gods, uh, including the sky goddesses and the earth goddesses. So, you know, Saraswati, uh, Lakshmi, or Maha, now called Cosmic Saraswati, Maha Saraswati, Maha Lakshmi, and Maha Kali form the three chapters uh, of the Devi Mahatmyam. And, uh, you know, you can think about the notion of creation, uh, Saraswati creating with the word, Lakshmi is also related to creation because she rises from the water and she also is related to preservation. She's the preservative vitality. Uh, and Durga really emerges during the period of Mahalakshmi. She's an embodiment in that sense of Mahalakshmi. And then you have Mahakali, who is the night that swallows the creation and from whom the new creation rises. So the entire epic or the story of Devi Mahatmyam begins with uh, the god Brahma, the creator god, god, praying to Mahakali to remove her influence from Vishnu so that he may get up and fight the demonic forces and a new creation may begin. So, it, in a way, there's an integration of all the goddess traditions that takes place in the 5th century. Uh, the, the seven mothers who also feature, I, I would say, I would argue, in the seals of the Indus Valley. Uh, they're called the Saptamatrika. Uh, you know, other goddess, goddess traditions are all integrated in that text. And this makes it possible for a new tradition of the Great Mother, Devi, uh, to arise and maintain itself uh, throughout history in, in India. You were originally from Kolkata, uh, formerly known as Calcutta, 
And that's a city to, I've never been there, but I understand that it is in some sense a city dedicated to the goddess Durga. And I recall speaking to you at one time when you were there and the festival of Durga was going on. I am under the impression this was the major festival of the year in Kolkata. Indeed, absolutely, uh, Jeffrey. So this is a festival that occurs usually in October. Uh, depending on the lunar cycle, it shifts a little bit, but still, it's usually in October and it's a 10-day festival. Uh, the real festival uh, occupies about three or four, the last three or four days of, I think, four days of the 10-day cycle. But the Durga festival, which is celebrated throughout Bengal and particularly the city of Calcutta or Kolkata, uh, is, is very interesting because the city transforms. All the streets are full of these uh, local temporary shrines. And all the artists, uh, communities come together to build these, uh, these sculptures, temporary clay sculptures. Uh, and nowadays, fiberglass sculptures because they want to make them permanent. And these are different interpretations of the goddess Durga. So there is a kind of artistic creativity that is uh, on display uh, throughout the city. And this is a continuation of these very ancient traditions that go back uh, and are rooted in the Devi Mahatmyam of the 5th century. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd also like to point out that you mentioned Calcutta. So it's not only the goddess Durga, but uh, very prominently the goddess Kali, mm -hmm. who is the patron goddess of, of Calcutta. Uh, Kali temples are scattered across Calcutta. There's a very prominent Kali temple that was there before the city really became an urban center uh, in South Calcutta. And then there is a really prominent temple to Kali in North Calcutta that was created during the period of the, of Indian nationalism. Uh, and that temple uh, was worshipped, uh, the, the Kali image of that temple was worshipped by Sri Ramakrishna, a very famous Bengali mystic uh, who belonged to the 19th century. Yes, Ramakrishna is really, to my understanding, considered the, the founding figure of the whole Vedanta movement. In a sense, exactly, though one may call him more primarily a tantric. Mm. Uh, but he brought together all these traditions. He was extremely eclectic. He took up different uh, spiritual traditions and lived them and realize them. And that includes the Vedantic tradition, uh, the Advaita Vedanta tradition, the Tantric traditions, uh, Vaishnav traditions, uh, traditions of Islam and Christianity as well. He felt that all this synthesis was being inspired by the goddess Kali. To my recollection, Ramakrishna, amongst other things, would occasionally dress in women's clothing. Absolutely, he did, because when he was particularly, when he was following the disciplines related to Vaishnavism, where Krishna is the premier uh, deity, uh, he would see himself as the beloved of Krishna and dressed like a woman and become, to some extent, a woman. He would transform. So these kinds of fluid uh, subjectivities and even physical transformations were observed in him uh, according to his practice. 
Well, I think we're getting closer now to the heart of the implications of goddess worship for a culture. Another piece of the puzzle, which seems to me to be quite important, is the tantric tradition, which I gather could very likely be much older than the Vedic tradition and has a lot to do with feminine spirituality. It it's a tradition that uh, one finds in India and in other parts of Asia, but I don't think there's anything comparable in the West. Uh, yes, uh, Jeffrey. So I think uh, maybe predating the Veda, you have the roots of or what we call Tantra in what we are talking about, the goddess worship, the worship of the nature goddesses, the worship of the chakras. So these seven goddesses that we find in the seals could very well be goddess deities that relate to our latent powers uh, that reside in the centers uh, of, the, of the esoteric anatomy of the human body. Uh, so this kind of notion of the goddess as power uh, who dwells inside us and outside us in the cosmos. So lakes, rivers, caves, uh, forests, trees uh, are all considered to be embodiments of the power of, of the goddess. So this power of the goddess that dwells in the gods, and so the, the tantric tradition begins with that notion that even the, what you're calling the sky gods or the later the Puranic gods really get their power from the feminine presence within them, the, the presence of the goddess. If the goddess were to leave the god, the god would be a corpse. So this is the central to the metaphor of, of Kali. Kali st stands on or sits on a supine Shiva. And Shiva is before Kali or without Kali, he's Shava. The word Shava means corpse. So he's a dead dead material entity, but with the power of Kali, which is symbolized by the seed syllable E, uh, so you Shava becomes Shiva. Uh, and sometimes this, this is shown as Kali straddling Shiva, uh, either standing or sitting down uh, and bringing him to life, bringing life to him by her awakening inside him in a way. So, in this sense, Tantra uh, opens up the possibility of conceiving of the world as the manifestation of power that is within us and within all things. It, you know, we talked about Maya, for example, uh, at an earlier stage. And Maya is a term that appears in the Veda, and there it means uh, a creative power or magic power, power of magic. Later, this magic power is, in Advaita Vedanta, it is meant to mean power of creating illusions. But Tantra uh, has a different idea of, of Maya. It holds Maya to be the, the creative power of the, of the world, of the earth and of the world. So, uh, one of the famous uh, scholars who has brought Tantra to the West, Sir John Woodruff, uh, has a famous book called Mahamaya, The World as Power. You may be familiar with this book, but that's what that book is about, how Maya is, is really the entire world, uh, that that's the feminine presence. Well, it's a wonderful thing that 
During the British colonization of India, you had scholars like Sir John Woodruff who were willing to really study the, the tantric and the Hindu traditions and uh, see them from the inside and then interpret them in English for Western audiences because my sense is that many of the Victorian British who came to India were probably horrified when they uh, observed the worship of Kali and, and, and thought that this is demonic, this is uh, ferocious female is, is something that you just don't find in the West. Yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, Jeffrey. So uh, the view of uh, the majority uh, kinds of scholars and, and, and people who came to India was that this is a very primitive uh, demon worship uh, so that that and you know we talked a lot about orientalism these days mm. about the fact that uh, when the colonizer comes to the native land they re-signify things in a way and even when they romanticize the practices of the, of the native they do it in such a way that it really subordinates it because it, it fossilizes it and it turns it into a, a what today we, we can look at as tourist industry. Mm -hmm. uh, it kills it in a way. But you have these really interesting examples of people like John Woodruff who not only studied the practice of Tantra but became a Tantric practitioner. He entered the, 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 the tradition and was considered one of the in, internal uh, practitioners of Tantra. So they have been very helpful in translating, in crossing the bridge uh, in a much more culturally sensitive manner, uh, in a manner that we need uh, today to build the right kinds of relations between these traditions and our present condition. I know that the great Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung, when looking at the Western Godhead, uh, the Trinity uh, in particular, felt that it was deficient because it lacked a feminine element. And to some extent, one could say, yes, the Virgin Mary uh, provides that for Catholics to some extent. But I think Jung felt that as a result, uh, in the West, we have denigrated uh, one of the four major functions of the human psyche, the, the function of intuition. And, and I wonder if in India, for example, where goddess worship has prevailed and the, one would have to say the, uh, the national godhead of India includes a feminine element uh, that's lacking in the West, does that influence the personality of people in that culture? I'd say yes and no, Jeffrey. So, uh, yes, in the sense that, uh, yes, Jung was looking at the return of these powers and in a way he was influenced or he was working within the framework of astrology and seeing a transition from a Piscean age, which was much more masculine in a sense, to a Aquarian age. And he talked about the return of the goddess as a sun woman. Mm. Uh, in India also, we see a return of the goddess during this nationalist period 
with people like Ramakrishna, Sri Aurobindo, uh, and other figures, even going back before them. Uh, but what we find is that this notion of intuition, as you're saying, uh, is also very prominent in the in the goddess traditions of India, with Saraswati being the goddess of inspiration and intuition. But even Kali, so for uh, for Ramakrishna, Kali was a, a goddess of wisdom. Uh, you know, and this is part of uh, the book that I'm uh, that's about to be released called uh, Philosophia Wisdom Goddess Traditions. Kali as as a as a wisdom goddess, uh, and I think these wisdom goddess traditions return in our time in in a very prominent way uh, at the at the grassroots level, at the level of personalities, as you said, at, at, of of human society. Uh, I think in India we have seen also over the centuries uh, a certain suppression of the feminine uh, in in public life in private life domestic life uh, a sort of relegation to a more uh, sort of habitual sphere a sphere of routine uh, also we find that there is a pushing back into the inner precincts uh, of the feminine and partly uh, this is happened over time uh, internally and partly due to the various colonizations that have taken place in India. Uh, various regions, large regions of India were under Muslim rule for a long time and all the Abrahamic religions with their sort of pushing back of the feminine uh, have had their influence. Uh, women were under, Muslim women were often under veil the parda and Indian women uh, also had to go behind the veil. They didn't wear a veil, but they never came out of the house until the nationalist period when that ta that taboo started being broken. Uh, similarly, during the Western colonization period, uh, Indian uh, people kept their women at home, didn't want them to come out because of the fear of, uh, you know, some kind of dishonor, uh, and things like that. But uh, we find that in the late 19th and 20th centuries, in places like Calcutta, there was a complete revaluation of this based on the goddess traditions. So you had a figure like Rabindranath Tagore, for example, who wrote many, he was a great poet who got the Nobel Prize in 1913, but he wrote many novels and plays that are about the return of, 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 of the woman into uh, the, an equal status uh, with males. Uh, you also have a, a, the rise of nationalism uh, based on the vision of India as a mother goddess, mother India. It, it's really a creation of the nationalist period. So somebody called Bankim Chandra Chatterjee, who belongs to the Bengal Renaissance, wrote a novel in which he really gave birth to the nation as a mother goddess. And people like Ramakrishna, who uh, actually not only practiced Tantra, but actively promoted the idea that every woman was a form of the goddess, and we should worship women in that, in the, in that way. Uh, you know, uh, in a way, this is also Tantric practice. We find in Ramakrishna's own life that he, in a ritual and spiritual manner, in a yogic manner, 
brought down the goddess into his partner, Sharada Devi, so that uh, she became like a living goddess. Uh, we see the same in the case of Sri Aurobindo, where his spiritual partner and collaborator was a French lady, uh, Mira Alfasa, who came from maybe quasi-Kabbalistic traditions. Mm -hmm. And they had, she, she represents a return of the goddess in the West in that sense, which was also going on at that time, around the early 20th century. Uh, and uh, the, the practices by which uh, they together brought down the goddess so that these major goddess figures like Mahakali, Mahasaraswati, Mahalakshmi, Maheshwari were almost embodied. They were like embodied in an embodied form in uh, the person of, of Mira Alfasa. Well, one of the big distinctions, to, in my mind, between uh, India and Asia in general, as opposed to the West, uh, if I had to boil it down to one word, it would be tolerance. One finds in India that every god is accepted, every religious practice is accepted and sort of brought into the fold of Hinduism. Even Jesus Christ is viewed uh, uh, as a Hindu deity, uh, along with all the others. Yeah, indeed, you're right, Jeffrey. There's two sides to it, because at one social level, there has also been religious orthodoxy that has entered India. And it has also uh, been affected by Western orthodoxies, by colonization, by religious proselytization, by conversion. Uh, so there has been a reaction to that. That has not, it doesn't sit so well with the kind of integration you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But also at another level, at a more spiritual level, from a very early period, what you're saying has happened. Uh, figures like Christ, even Durga for that matter, has uh, inputs from Mesopotamia, from the goddess Inanna, not only from the uh, contests in India uh, with animals. Uh, so there has been an embrace, and I think it's because of what I was saying regarding the kind of idea in the Upanishad that the divine is infinite. It's one and plural at the same time. Um, and so one, one, the tolerance that you're talking about is coming from that kind of an embrace of a pluralistic idea of the divine. I mean, it would be, for many Westerners, horrifying to use the feminine pronoun to refer to God. Absolutely, you're quite right. And that, that's, that's common. I mean, we think of God as the mother, as the goddess, and, and as the father, as the friend, uh, as the lover. So, so there is this tremendous fluidity and plurality to our relations with God. God is not just a father. So th this is, uh, I think, quite common, particularly in India and in an extended way in other traditions of Asia. One might say that the Western emphasis on a male God has resulted in accomplishments of science and technology that began in the West, but it may well be that we're entering a whole new phase now where the imbalances of Western society are becoming more and more pronounced. We can see the harm that is being done to the earth itself as a result of science and technology, and that 
Perhaps the more balanced approach one finds in India and elsewhere in Asia is going to be more suited for the times that we're about to face. You're, you're absolutely right, uh, in, in Jeffrey. In fact, what you were talking about with Carl Jung, uh, he, he sees this in, in the sense of individuation mm -hmm. and as a kind of emergence from the goddess. So it's the earth goddess, the cycles of nature, which really are, are cyclical and that inter, that, that have, uh, that absorb our consciousness. Our consciousness comes from it. And so long as it belongs to it, we are in harmony with the rest of nature, with the ec ecological balance uh, of nature. But there is an individuation factor that enters into that over time, which splits us away from the balance of nature. And the, the mind, uh, it becomes a kind of an observing disembodied entity. It's almost like a head that stands on its own in a disembodied form over the cycles of human society. And that's what gives this kind of impetus of science and uh, the control philosophy, as we know it, metaphysics, creating a map of the cosmos, uh, dominating the cosmos, uh, and things like that. But there is another approach to the whole thing, which is what we are talking about with the traditions of integrating the goddess, because the goddess does not lack intuition. And the mind can also be an ac activity of the goddess. Uh, we can have uh, uh, in intuitive uh, perceptions, uh, the perceptions of the seers, of the rishis, that connect us in unity with the rest of the beings of the world uh, in a great embrace, but also that give us knowledge uh, through which we can deal with the world in, in an intimate manner, in a relational manner, participatory manner. I think we are being called to that kind of greater wisdom of the goddess uh, today. I have to agree with you, Devashish. It, it strikes me that this denial of the goddess is really a, a denial of our own wholeness. Yes, absolutely. I think we've seen uh, at least six centuries of that, and it's led us to the brink of extinction today. We are living in a dystopic world, a world in which we are constantly trying to patch together the cracks. And all over the world, we are facing these kind of tremendous pandemics, uh, climate crisis, cultural breakdowns, and it's all partly due to the, the, the sort of disembodiment of the mind uh, creating the condition that we're in today. And I'm under the impression you earlier referred to the goddess Inanna of, of Samaria. Right. Uh, my understanding is that this, the legends of Inanna are the, the first known legends to my understanding, I could be wrong about this, having to do with death and rebirth which is important in Christianity, of course, and in all other religious traditions where Inanna is, is taken down to the underworld and is stripped of everything. She becomes practically no more than a piece of meat, uh, but she is revived and, and, and returns. And it seems to me that this energy of the goddess is especially crucial when we're facing a time when things are falling apart and need to be put back together. How true, how true, Jeffrey. You're absolutely right. And that's exactly, I think, the, the power of regeneration of the goddess who goes through these cycles. 
cycles of expression and reabsorption and rebirth. Uh, and each one is a new expression of qualities. And I think a more integral kind of expression is what we are being called to invoke uh, from and in the goddess today. Well, before we conclude, I'd like to go back to the image of Kali. Yes. Uh, and particularly, I know uh, you've used the word Maha, Maha Saraswati, Maha Lakshmi, Maha Kali, and I, I, Maha means great. Yes. And I think what you're referring to is a, a kind of assimilation of many different local goddesses into this larger figure. Uh, yes, you're quite right, Jeffrey. A cosmic figure. Mm -hmm. So it's it's again we talk when we are talking about the sky gods, we are talking about these cosmic figures, figures that stand outside, and it's the, the idea of what's called panentheism today, transcendent and immanent at the same time. So though they may have arisen out of local and regional earth practices, yeah. practices related to regional worship of power in a specific lake or a specific tree and become greater due to sort of accumulation of uh, the power. Uh, it, with the notion of the Maha, these figures become cosmic figures. Mm -hmm. They are present in the earth, uh, around the earth, embracing the earth, and also transcendent of the earth. And that's how the, uh, the, the great, you know, panentheistic idea of the Divine Mother uh, has been formed in, in texts like Devi Mahatmyam. So, with regard to Mahakali, who is a particularly fierce yes. goddess, and I think uh, for many Westerners frightening, could you explain a little bit the deeper significance of worshipping a, a figure like that? So, Jeffrey, the, the, the other interesting thing is how each of these figures has become a kind of locus, uh, focus or locus, because there's an entire uh, circle around these goddesses uh, of different types of practices. And so, though, as you're saying, she is a goddess of death, a goddess of reabsorption uh, of the night, the night that swallows up the day and prepares the new birth, uh, that's the origins of Kali. But Kali, and, and that, that is a valid function uh, that we can worship, that we can call on. Because whatever we are at every moment, we need to also birth ourselves anew. And that requires, you know, in India, in, in, in Sanskrit uh, uh, spiritual literature, you have the idea of two kinds of activities. They're called pravritti and nivritti. And they include the word vritti, which those who are familiar with the Yoga Sutra uh, have come across. Chitta vritti nirodha. This chitta, chitta meaning consciousness, vritti means activity or tendency towards activity. So the tendency towards activity of consciousness that takes on a certain kind of momentum and creates a entire uh, you know, context of activity around our collective lives, uh, it, it's very, it, it starts off as a very creative pursuit, but at the same time, it has limitations to it at any point because it's marked by our personal limitations and it, it turns corrosive at a certain point, poisonous at a certain point. And that's the point when it needs to be reabsorbed and rethought and re emanated 
as it were. So even that first line of, of, of the Yoga Sutra, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha, Nirodha, uh, one meaning of Nirodha is to contain, uh, but another meaning is to erase. So the absorption of the uh, tendency towards activity, uh, which is called pravritti, uh, is known as nivritti, the absorption into the night, the day entering the night. And so Kali is the power who gives us this uh, return to the great darkness. Mm. And from that, she births the new life, this rebirth idea. Uh, so that's why she's shown in the cremation ground and she is getting rid of all the, uh, you know, the creation. Uh, but she picks up the heads and wears them like a garland. So this garland uh, that Kali wears uh, has been called also the garland of letters, which is, we talked about, this is the name of another book by Sir John Woodruff, mm -hmm. the garland of letters. Because letters, the alphabet in Sanskrit is also called akshara. Akshara means indestructible. So what are the indestructible atoms of the creation once we destroy it? They are regenerated. Uh, so they're, they're collected back by Kali and worn like a necklace around her neck in preparation for the new creation in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the symbolism of Kali. But, you know, so their tantric traditions have given tremendous prominence to this, but also many lineages have developed around it. And in modern Bengal, uh, going back from Ramakrishna to other great figures like Ramprasad Sen, uh, another great uh, tantric called Kamala Kanta, they have married the Vaishnav and the tantric traditions and have made Kali not just into a power that destroys and absorbs, but into a, a, a beautiful figure of um, embodiment of beauty and love. So their poems and songs adulate her in a cosmic sense as a embodiment of beauty. So it's, it's exactly the opposite of what you were saying. Uh, when you think of her and brought up in, in Bengal, myself, mm -hmm. uh, in a culture, even our family culture uh, worships Kali, uh, I found it very difficult and hard to imagine how people think of her as a frightening figure because culturally I saw her as a beautiful figure. So it's really a, a matter of the approach and the, the kind of imagination mm -hmm. through which we approach these goddesses. I mean, from a psychological point of view, it seems to me, here in the West in particular, that the greatest evils that humans inflict upon each other are done in the name of fighting evil. Yes, that's and true. These demonic figures in the West, we want nothing to do with them. They could be no part of us, but indeed they are. But And if we acknowledge that we have that potential within us, I think we're less likely to uh, project it out onto the world and engage in evil ourselves. You're quite right, Jeffrey. So this, this whole notion of the evil being projected outwards, uh, and, you know, identified with the other, mm -hmm. however we look at the other, uh, turning the other into the demon, 
demonizing as yeah. we call it demonizing yeah it's 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 a part of this what we are calling the male activity because it's objectification yeah. it's separation uh, i think the yoga traditions and the tantra traditions of tantra are inviting us to look at this within first uh, that this entire idea of what are the forces psychological forces going through us and what are the divine forces going through us have to be recognized as a transformative process uh, as a, a term that you've used transformative psychology it's a transformative psycho or transformational psychology that these traditions are talking about well debashish Banerjee, i'm so glad we've had this conversation i'm delighted to be able to share it with our viewing audience i want to Thank you once again for making the journey uh, from the San Francisco Bay Area to Albuquerque so that we could have this time together. Uh, and of course, you're welcome back at any time. I know we could uh, continue these conversations for years and, and years. They're so wonderful. Debashish, thank you. Yeah, it's such a pleasure always to converse with you, Jeffrey. Thank you. And for those of you Listening or watching, thank you for being with us.